0: You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nate, for reading that passage Such a joy to have you guys here uh, this morning with us. Okay. The title for this sermon is Outrage. If you like to be angry, if you love feeling outrage, what a time to be alive, (laughs) huh, what a time to be alive, I did a little digging, a little searching my own heart, and a little looking online, and I have come up with a very incomplete list of things to ignite outrage, and I'm going to share this incomplete list with you, but if you're looking for things to be angry about, here are some. You ready? Republicans. Democrats. (laughs) Libertarians. Bad drivers. Bad Wi-Fi. Dirty clothes lying on the floor. Those, those little fruit flies that come out in the spring around here that make you just feel like you must be a terrible housekeeper for some reason and they're just always there and you don't know, you don't know why. Somebody using their speakerphone in public. Being ignored. Being given unsolicited advice, which is kind of the opposite of being ignored. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, being talked down to feeling disrespected, being threatened, being treated unjustly, being interrupted. We can feel outrage just by jumping on board with a popular issue that we don't necessarily understand but seems to have everybody else outraged and we really just don't wanna miss out on that. Sometimes we get outraged when somebody doesn't care or talk about an issue in the same way that you care or talk about that issue. If you want to be mad, there are 17 things to choose from. They're out of a list of millions more. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek. If we haven't met, this is something I do. Sometimes I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek. And I recognize, I recognize that there are lots of things that very legitimately should cause us to feel outrage. Don't be mad at me for not mentioning that yet. Because I just did. But we do well to think about the things that make us mad. We do well to think about the things that cause us to be angry, the anger that we have, our list of enemies. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking about a culture that was very comfortable dividing humanity into two tidy groups friends, enemies, and you love one and you hate the other. And his instruction to his followers is clear, it's humbling, and it is not how the world tends to work. And so we're going to look at it, we're going to walk through it, verse by verse, but as we do, here's something I want us to keep in mind is that when Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to be mindful just of the way we move through the world when it even comes to the thought of having enemies, what he's calling us to is as much for our own well-being as it is for the well-being of anybody else. So he starts by saying, you have heard it said, a reminder to us, that every generation and every culture has values, that are uniquely their own. Things that other generations didn't necessarily think about or care about in the same ways that we do. But the values and the systems that we have, we treasure them. We we think about them. We put language around them. The messaging around our values and our systems tell us how to think about them. But the values and the language that belong to our present generation are not necessarily True values. They're just what we know. They're what we steep in. But if Jesus is the eternal word of God, which he says he is, John's gospel opens, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. If that's who Jesus is, if he is the eternal word of God, then when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, He is saying, the moment that you're in values this, but my word to you on the matter will never age out of truth. It won't. That's why it's so vital for us to be in the word, to be in scripture, is to be soaking in the truth of what God has to say to us that never expires. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is, of course, a perversion, right, of the second great command to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because if you take away that second part, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and it's just love your neighbor, what you can do with that, you can do a lot with that, right? What you can do is you can lower the standard of what it means to love somebody simply by separating people into these two categories of neighbors and enemies. And in this system, you get to define what constitutes a neighbor, And what constitutes a neighbor is anyone who's not an enemy. You have these two groups. But in this system, you can actually count your neighbor as an enemy if he builds his fence too high. And you're free to determine then who deserves to be loved by you. Who deserves to be loved by you? And then you can reserve it only for them. But the problem, which we should all be able to see on its face, is that this isn't loving your neighbor at all, this is just loving yourself. It's loving yourself by extending care only to those who benefit you in some way or who please you in some way. So he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We have to treat everybody with respect, and with dignity. And here Jesus is calling us to that. And what he's saying is he's saying, answer words with words. If you have enemies who call for your demise, answer them with prayers for their well-being. Call for the Lord's blessing. John Stott, when he was writing about this love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He wrote about the time that Jesus was being crucified and he said this. He said, Jesus prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That imperfect tense means there's an ongoingness to what was happening when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, that he didn't just say it once, but he repeated it. It was an ongoing prayer. Stott continues, he says, If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, then what pain or pride or prejudice or sloth could justify the silencing of ours. That's strong. That's also a preacher trick right there. I wanted to say something strong and I just let stop do it (coughs) instead. What would silence our prayer for our enemies if Jesus wouldn't silence his while he's being crucified? Why in the world, though, should we respond to our enemies with grace? What I love about this text is Jesus gets into the why of this. He doesn't just tell us to do it. He tells us why to do it. And part of the reason is because this is how Jesus loves us. This is what he's done for us, is he has responded to his enemies with grace. And it's what the Father's like, he says. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, quote, here's what he says, so that you may be like your Father who is in heaven. What is the father like? He goes on. He says he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's what he's like. This whole passage is is inviting us to really wrestle with the question, who deserves what from me? Who deserves to be loved by me? The grace that Jesus is describing here, God sending rain on the just and on the unjust, is a grace that is not in response to the unjust possessing saving faith. But it is a grace that is in response to the fact that they exist. And that's enough. That they're here that they live. They bear God's image. And because they do, they're worthy of respect and honor. And to give it is to imitate God. Are you uncomfortable yet? Because there's more. Did I lose you with Republicans? (laughs) Jesus doubles down here with a further reason for why you should love and pray for your enemies. He says you should do it so that you'd be like your Father who is in heaven, who sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But then he also says this, he takes it further. He says if, if you only love those who love you, what reward is there in that? It's the idea of quid pro quo, right? Because that's what we want. I do for you, you do for me. But that isn't other-centered love. That's self-love. That's the way of the world. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but it's not the way of the Father. It's not the way of the Father. It's not the way of the Christian. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, what makes the Christian different from other men is the peculiar, the extraordinary, the unusual That which is not a matter of course, it is the more, it is the beyond all that. Here's the difference. Here is the beyond all that that he's talking about. Christians are not called to love others as people tend to love. Christians are called to love others as God loves It's what it means in verse 45 to be children of the Father, that we're children of the Father here. As his children, we're learning to love as our Father loves. How does our Father love? James Boyce, when he was studying the love of God, one of the things that he noticed is that in the New Testament, almost every time God's love is mentioned, it's mentioned in a sentence that is also mentioning the cross. That the cross of Christ and the love of God in the New Testament are connected in the text. For example, one we likely all know, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The love of God and the cross of Christ. 1 John 10, uh, 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love of God, the cross of Jesus. One more, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God, the cross of Christ. What is this teaching us? What is it teaching us? It's teaching us that the cross is the measure of God's love. What does that tell us about how we are to love others as people who are imitating God's love for us? It tells us that God's love for us in Christ was not something that was set aside for the righteous only, but it's for sinners, and it's costly. Our love is to be a self-emptying love. We don't love people based on what they can give us, We love based on their inherent dignity and worth as image bearers of God, but even more than that, we see their love as something that we act on, that we love by being willing to sacrifice for others. Instead of repaying only what we think a person deserves, Jesus just keeps taking us deeper into the complexity and the impossibility, really, of what he's asking of us. Because he says this, just be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Do that. And at this, you may just want to throw in the towel and say, well, Jesus is asking something that is impossible here. And to that, I would say, now we're getting somewhere. Yes, that's the right response to that. If Jesus is saying to people in their natural state without any help, to love as God loves and to be perfect as he is perfect, then we are done. We're sunk. And Jesus knows this. He says it. He says it. In, in John 8, 43, he's talking to the religious leaders, and one of the things that he says to them is he says that they, you don't understand me because you can't understand me. You're unable to understand what I'm trying to say. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14 It describes the things of the Spirit as foolishness, as incomprehensible to people who don't have the Spirit of God because the thoughts of God are spiritually discerned. John 14, 16 and 17, Jesus promises to send his Spirit to live in the hearts of his people, a counselor. These are the words Jesus uses. He says, the Spirit of truth Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. For us to even get in the ballpark of what Jesus is talking about here, we need the Holy Spirit. Guess what? we've been given the Holy Spirit. When your faith is in Christ, the Spirit of the Lord lives in you. And by his help, following his counsel, we then have this call to love as the Father loves. And it's a sacred call to not go through life outraged but praying for your enemies, contending for the well-being of your enemies, not only in our thoughts, but in how we lay down our lives for their good. We might hear this call to love with a divine love as just an impossible directive. I just can't, I can't do it. What if it's not a directive as much as it's an invitation? Lord, I see what you're saying in your word. Teach me. Teach me to love like you love. May your spirit work in me in such a way that the things that cause me to despise others are eclipsed by the worth that you see in them. Help me to see that so clearly that love for enemies comes easily. May I come to see my own insecurities and fears that lead me to belittle others. May I come to see the things that cause me to lose patience with people I've never even met, to cut people down in conversation in order to try to build myself up. Help me to see that for what it is, a fear, a fear that I am unlovable unless I can prove my worth somehow. When this becomes our prayer, When our prayer is, Lord, show me the obstacles that keep me from loving other people well, when that's your prayer, guess what you're already doing? You're practicing the art of loving others well. You're saying, Lord, show me where I struggle with this. That's a way of loving. Because what are we doing? We're asking the Lord to work in us so that we're in a posture of being able to receive others. We're asking the Lord to soften our hearts toward those we would otherwise just hold in contempt. We're asking the Lord to move through us and to prevail over us in our fear of risking love. And is this not a kindness from the Lord this call to love our enemies when the alternative would be to go through life hating them. Jesus is fighting for our hearts, calling us to walk in love. And the days are short. May we walk in love. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount calling us to things that if we're honest, we'd just really rather not do. Like love enemies. Because in this call to love our enemies is a process of eliminating the number of enemies that we have or perceive ourselves to have. Father, I thank you for the way that you contend for us, that when you call us to do things and not do things, it's not because you just have a list of rules that you're kind of particular about and want us to toe a line, but it's because you're you're contending for us in the way that we live and move through this world, that you're fighting for our hearts, to know you and to respond to the kind of love that you have for us and to enjoy the kind of love that you have for us, which is impossible for us to do if our own lives are knotted up with contempt and animosity toward other people. So set us free. Lord, we do ask that you would give us outrage over the things that we should be outraged about. But Father, deliver us from pettiness, deliver us from an us versus them mentality, and lead us in the way of loving others and following you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, amen.